Okay, in chapter 7 thus far, we have covered the two prophetic miracles that are found in uh, chapter 7. The first one dealing with the healing of the centurion's servant. And it echoes Elijah's healing of Naaman the leper over in 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14. There are lots of parallels between the healing of Naaman the leper in the Old Testament in, in 2 Kings chapter 5 and the healing of the centurion's servant here in Luke chapter 7. Likewise, uh, the, the raising of the widow's son in Nain here in Luke chapter 7 is strongly reminiscent of Elijah's raising of the widow's son in Zarephath, which you'll find in 1 Kings 17, 20 through 24. And these parables are no accident. Together they draw a strong correlation between Jesus and the long history of the prophetic ministry of God, especially with regards to the centurion's servant. The centurion is not a is not a Jew. He's he's a Roman in the occupation forces that are that are occupying Judea. So he's an outsider. He's a foreigner. However, he is a righteous. Gentile. He's one who studied the Hebrew law. He's one who has been very generous with his money in terms of giving to the Hebrew community, to the Jewish community. He paid for the building of, of, of the synagogue there in Capernaum. So he's a very good and righteous Roman, even though he's part of the Roman occupation. And his servant, um, we don't know anything about this servant. However, a pretty good chance that he also is not a Jew. So here we have a man who's not a Jew whose faith Jesus lauds and someone who's probably not a Jew being healed by Jesus. And this communicates the fact that the gospel is open to people who are beyond the Jewish community, people who are outside the Hebrew covenant, to Gentiles. The Messiah had always been thought of as being a Messiah to the Jews, but here it's very clear now that the Messiah is for more than just the Jews. The Messiah is for the whole world that God is going to speak and act and do things for all of creation, for, for the whole world, Gentiles as well as Jews. So we have that proclamation in, in the healing of the Roman centurion's servant. Similarly, in the raising of the widow's son, we have someone, a widow, in, a, in the Jewish society. A widow is without a without a voice in society after her husband dies, unless her father is still alive or has a brother who's still alive or a nephew who's still alive. And when the son dies, and if it's, his, if, if it's her only son, then suddenly, if there's nobody else, there's no other male, then she is suddenly bereft of any kind of voice in society. She can't engage in commerce. She can't buy and sell, except on a very rudimentary level, she cannot buy and sell property without a male in her life to execute the contracts. She, she cannot engage in any political activity at all within the society because women are political and economic non-entities in the Jewish world at this time. The very rare, in fact, in, in the entire world, in the ancient world at this time, at least in, in, in the Western world, in the, in the empire, in the, in the Mediterranean basin civilizations, women were fairly non-entities. There are a few exceptions to this, people like Cleopatra, but they are the, the exception that proves the rule. So for when, when a woman's husband is dead, has no father living, has no son other than one, and that one son dies, suddenly she's left uh, in real trouble. 
And Jesus comes along this circumstance where he finds this funeral service going on, and he has compassion. It says that he has compassion for the woman, and he stops the beer moving, and then he raises the son from the dead. In doing so, he's, he's doing more than just a nice healing or a nice raising of the dead. He's doing something more than something nice for the woman. He's righting a social wrong. He's engaging in in an act of social holiness as well as spiritual and personal holiness. He's righting a social wrong by bringing this son back so that he can care for his mother. So here we have in these two prophetic events the opening of the messianic message to the entire world and we have Jesus proclaiming a major change in how things are going to happen. of course, it's a small step, but it is a step. So that's where we were last time. We'd finished those two healings. We looked at how they are parallel, and that's contained in the handout that I gave there on page one. So now we're going to move on to the discourse about John the Baptizer, which starts at chapter 7, verse 18 in your Bibles. So turn to 718. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask to, to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? And Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. Notice that verse 21. We have two examples of Jesus, one healing, the other raising someone from the dead. But verse 21 indicates that there was significantly more going on and, and that there may be this the temporality here, the temporal sequences here are not necessarily hard and fast. In fact, that's been true already in the gospel. It's going to continue to be true as we process through the rest of Luke's gospel. We're going to note that there's issues with temporality, temporal sequence from event to event to event to event. Luke does not seem to be nearly so interested in maintaining a linear progression of first this, then that, then this other. Sometimes he's jumping around in a thematic structure to make his points, at least relative to Mark's gospel and Matthew's parallel of it. And in verse 21, we have an indicator that he's just gone about some more healings. And and he cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And this had just happened. And it's indicated as such because the disciples of John the Baptist had seen it. All right. They were witnesses. So it was just happening when they arrive as emissaries from John the Baptist. We've heard about John the Baptist already back at the very beginning of the gospel. We are introduced to him uh, in, his, in his mom and dad before he was conceived. We experienced the, the miraculous nature of that conception. We experienced the, what he's supposed to do and be and become in terms of the forerunner of, of, of Jesus. That's already been hinted at significantly back at the beginning of the gospel. And then we met him then and when he's doing his baptisms. And the connection between Jesus and him were, was indicated at that time. So this is nothing new. This material is, is um, 
reaching back and remembering those events. We also heard that he was arrested uh, right there at the time of Jesus' uh, uh, baptism. So uh, this, he's, he's a known quantity, let us say. He's, these miracles have been going on in verse 22. And he, Jesus, answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. So Jesus' answer is not simply to say, yes. His answer is to tell them to take a look around and see what's been going on. And go back and tell John the Baptist these things. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And here's what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now, what does that remind you of? What does this sequence of things remind you of? Back when Jesus was first beginning his ministry in Luke chapter 4, we have Jesus going to his home synagogue in Nazareth. He enters his home synagogue and he stands up and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him and he reads from chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, we have uh, Jesus uh, reading from Isaiah 61. We have Jesus essentially proclaiming this as his calling scripture. It says in verse 20, And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. In verse 21, Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this is what he says at the beginning of his ministry he is going to do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Mashiach, the Hebrew word for Messiah, is, is based on the, 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 the verb for anointed. He is, a Mashiach is an anointed one. And here that root is used because he has messiah to me, you might say. Mashiach me. Uh, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And right there you hear it echoed down here in verse 22. The poor have good news brought to them. Wow. He's getting ready to catalog what he's going to do here in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And here in chapter 7, after, after having done it for a while, he's cataloging back now what his ministry has included. Again, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. Those are kind of like being released 
from captivity. If you can't walk and you can't see or can't hear, you, 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 you're captive to these problems. So if you're a leper, you're captive. You're not allowed to enter into the general community and become involved. It's like being released from captivity. So he's, he's cataloging here how his ministry is indeed a fulfillment of the one whom they are expecting, just as he said it would be from the get-go. All right? Let's pause there for a moment and see if there are any questions, remarks, thoughts. Confirmation of the job description. Yes, confirmation of the job description. That's exactly what it is. He said at the very beginning, this is what I'm here to do. And now when he's asked about it by John the Baptist and his, through his followers, through John the Baptizer's followers, he says, I said I was going to do it, and here I'm doing it. And, and you know, he's, it's a direct reference to that because the terminology is really close. At least two instances, and you can see the rest of them there too. Jesus isn't done with this question of his nature relative to John what, the Baptist, what, but well, in, yes? In 23, it says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Right. What, what is and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. That's actually, well, there's a lot of things that that could mean. A lot of people were taking offense at Jesus, especially amongst the leaders of the community. Just as they took offense at John the baptizer, so they take offense at him. In fact, Jesus is going to talk about that in just a moment. This could also be seen as a reference to those within the Baptist community. By that I mean John the Baptist community. Who tended to take offense at how the Jesus community had supplanted the John the Baptist community. We're going to talk about that in just one second. So this kind of 23 might point towards the next verses. So anyone who listens and accepts is blessed. Yes. That, act, that actual characteristic is found here. It's found in chapter 8 and it's found in chapter 9 articulated very clearly as we will see in the coming weeks. Hear and do. Hear, receive, and do are all important characteristics. Let's finish this section. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. You didn't go out to see some reed blowing in the wind. You didn't go out to see someone dressed in soft robes. They live in palaces, not out in the countryside. You went out to see and hear a prophet in John the Baptizer. The one about whom it is written, and this is found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you 
who will prepare your way before you. Luke has Jesus quoting from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, about John the baptizer, indicating that this is a forerunner to him. The forerunner who is identified as being the forerunner to the Messiah, Elijah, again in, in human form, as a prophet, the great prophet. Here we have him fulfilling his role, the role like Elijah, pointing to the coming Messiah. Jesus is saying, that's who John the Baptist is. That's really important. I tell you, among those born of woman, no one is greater than John. Stop right there. No one is greater than John. Now, why is this important? Why is it important for Jesus to address this issue? It's probably more important for the community that Luke is writing to. The Christian community. Remember, Luke is, a, is, is writing to a Gentile Christian community in diaspora uh, settings, in, in Gentile settings, in Asia Minor, in the Aegean Sea Basin region. He is writing to, to Gentile Christians. There are some Jewish Christians present, but for the most part, it's Gentile Christians. And at this time, there were two basic communities. This is after 70 AD. Luke is writing in the late 70s or 80s AD. This is after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when Judaism went through a massive transformation. No longer could you have multiple denominations within Judaism because the temple had been destroyed. The only way to have cohesive survival as a community of believers, as a religion, and as a society was to coalesce around existing structural um, institutional norms and the only one that remained after the destruction of the temple and the expulsion from Jerusalem of the Jews was the synagogue system and the synagogues were controlled run and operated founded under the authority of the Pharisees so if you were a Sadducee you now had to be a Pharisee if you had been an Essene you now had to be a Pharisee if you were a Zealot you now had to be a Pharisee you, you needed to adopt their practices, their approach, their understanding to be a part of their community. And that was what was required. And hence, those denominations within Judaism that couldn't do it got expelled. We have references to this over in Matthew's Gospel of it happening to Christians. Jewish Christians who wanted to maintain their identity as Jews and also be Christians were expelled from the synagogues after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. Likewise, John the Baptist followers. There, John the Baptist developed a community, even though he was beheaded before Jesus was crucified. Uh, a community of his disciples still existed even as late as the 70s and 80s AD. We see references to it in the Acts of the Apostles. We see people who only knew the baptism of John, who, who seemed to, to be coming to within Christian circles to relate and communicate. They found common cause and common interest in the ministry of the disciples of Jesus Christ, the Apostles. There were interconnections with, uh, communications between the John the Baptist community on one hand and the Christian community on the other. Um, and that is being affirmed here in a very positive sense. Essentially, Luke is through Jesus saying, these followers of John the Baptist are to be welcomed. There is no one born of woman. I tell you, among those born of woman, no one is greater than John, John the Baptist. This is an affirmation of the Baptist communities. This is an affirmation of those disciples. 
essentially, in a sense, welcoming them in. And so long as they uh, take no offense at Jesus, they are indeed welcome. Hence, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. That reference back to verse 23. Now, with that being said, look at the next bit in that verse. Yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, John the Baptist. So they are welcome, but they need to be recognizing that John the Baptist is simply setting the way for Christ, and the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. So it's both welcoming and accepting and kind of putting them in their place telling them they have a role to play, they have a position to be in, but they need to recognize that we've moved beyond John the Baptist. We've moved beyond John the Baptist. Questions and thoughts on that? Keep in mind that everything in the Gospels was written for communities that existed at the time of the writing the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s AD in John's case, the Gospel of John. And hence, stories about Jesus, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' preachings, Jesus' healings, Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, Jesus' interactions with the Sadducees, Jesus' actions with interactions with the Romans, all of these things are, are shaded, are filtered through the experience of the church in the 70s and 80s and before. How many miles north, south, east, west, did Jesus travel? Not very far. Jesus' ministry is confined to Galilee in the north and then the region of Judea or Judah in the south. Well, how many miles is that kind of around? Not far. Miles? Huh? A hundred miles? Less. Well, north, south. You can see how quickly this could spread to everyone. Oh, yeah. Them, oh, yeah. Even without modern technology. Like be like Hunt County or something, or maybe bigger. I don't know. But. It is a region. It is a region, you know, probably, in fact, it is a region quite tiny by comparison to what we're used to thinking of. It's not a massive trip. And yes, by word of mouth, his fame spread throughout the entire region of Galilee very quickly. He became a very important person. Uh, people would come to see Jesus. Well, I guess you could say the same with John the Baptist. John the Baptist had, before Jesus, amassed a large following of people. Now, his getting arrested and getting his head chopped off didn't help things. <laughs> but, but it also highlighted the fact that he was a real irritant to the Jewish leadership, both the religious leadership and the political leadership. I mean, Herod Antipas couldn't stand him and had reasons for disliking him, given some of the things he said about his wife. But for the most part, John the Baptist is viewed in the Gospels as being the forerunner to Jesus. He's given great laud and honor in Luke's Gospel, and we hear it right here. But then it's tempered by the reality that we're past John the Baptist now. And those who are hanging on to John the Baptist need to 
give thanks to God for John the Baptist and what John the Baptist did and then move on. That's what we're kind of dealing with here. An echo of that situation in the church during the New Testament period in the 70s and 80s. <clears throat> then we have this parenthetical statement here in verse 29. It kind of summarizes the preceding paragraph. And all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God because they had been baptized with John's baptism. That's interesting. All the people who heard it, including the tax collectors, those nasty, evil, rotten IRS agents, they acknowledged the justice of God because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But by refusing to be baptized by John, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. So here we have that dichotomy. The religious leaders of the day, the religious leaders of the community, they rejected John the Baptist. They also reject Jesus. The sinners, the people, the common folk, even the tax collectors, although tax collectors, there's a love-hate relationship with them tax collectors. They're, they're, they're selling out to the Roman occupation forces. They're collecting taxes. But they, they are marginalized people, yes, but Jesus has made an effort to include them by even making one of them one of his disciples. So even they are included, and they were part of the groups that were baptized by John the Baptist. And now they are welcomed into Jesus' community. Verse 31. To what then will I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We, wait, we wailed, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. He has a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. What does that sound like? The phrasing, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. It's very familiar sounds coming from the Song of Solomon. Interesting. Including this, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not weep. So John the Baptist comes. He doesn't eat bread. He drinks no wine. My gosh, he eats locusts and wild honey. Blech. And you and you said he had a demon. Now, Jesus comes, eating and drinking, and you said he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. You can't win with the Pharisees. You can't win with the religious leaders. You're either weird and have a demon or you're a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. That's this generation. That's the rulers of this age. That's the religious leaders of this world that Jesus is facing, very much like John the Baptist faced. Now, John the Baptist was an interesting character. He, you know, as I said, he liked locusts and wild honey. 
like locust and wild honey, and I don't find that at all appealing. Do you? I don't. Oops, your foot's on it. That'll be funny when I edit that out. <laughs> uh, he liked locusts and wild honey. He was weird. Jesus ate and drank and was a friend of sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, people that the, people that the Jewish community didn't want to have anything to do with. No wonder the leaders hated both and rejected both. Neither met the standards that are common in religious communities. Hmm. This sets the stage for the next story. Questions before we move forward? Interesting. One of the Pharisees Pharisees are not really known for being hospitable, all right? One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, one who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now what in the world's going on? How, how can she be standing behind him and crying and washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair and anointing them with this ointment from the alabaster jar? How can she be doing this? At, and they're eating. How'd they sit at table? They reclined. They reclined. They didn't sit in chairs like we do. They reclined with the feet out behind them. So here she is, here he is lying down. And a really noted sinner comes into this house. First of all, I think it's fascinating. She gets into this house. This house of the Pharisee. How in the world did that happen? Lots of speculation as to that. Mm -hmm. it, it, in the next verses, it looks like this Pharisee may have planned it as a trap to find out what Jesus would do. But here we've got Jesus reclining and eating and this woman coming who's known to be a sinner. And she is washing his feet with her own tears drying them with her hair. And now it says she continued kissing his feet. This is borderline sexual. And anointing them with the ointment. Possibly even over the borderline sexual. Considering that in the Jewish community, feet had a certain connotation as an idiom for 
genitalia. Now, is that the case here? Probably not. But it's suggestive of that to certain people, certain scholars, certain readers, and might have been to certain people then. But it's pretty clear she's doing it to his actual feet. She's crying, she's drying them, she's kissing them, and she's putting ointment on them. And notice what it says. Now the Pharisee, verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. He ought to know better than to let her get on that mat with him, cry on his feet, dry it with her hair, kiss his feet, and anoint it with ointment. You ought to know better if you were a real prophet. You ought to know better. It's kind of like Jesus failed his test. So in other words, he had ulterior motives in welcoming Jesus in for this meal. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Look at his response. Teacher, he replied. Rabbi, he replies. I think that's fascinating. He, 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 he accords to Jesus the honor of rabbihood, which is rather surprising. Rabbi, he replied. Speak. Jesus says in verse 41, a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. Huh. Huh. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Think about that for a moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. We'll speak to that. Well, she's the, the greater sinner, apparently, than the Simon. Well, so she is the one who owes the, the metaphor of the 500 denarii, right? Whereas he, being a good, righteous Pharisee, only owes 50. Therefore, she is more grateful for the forgiveness that she has received. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Which means that Jesus is essentially calling Simon an ungrateful slob. <laughs> And that's exactly what he says here in just a moment. Hmm. Verse 43 again. Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. As always, Simon proves his analysis and understanding of the law and of morality is true. I mean, he's not ignorant, which makes him even more guilty. This happens multiple times, by the way, in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. <laughs> then turning 
toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. When you would visit a home, the host would usually have one of his servants wash your feet. When you, you lived in a world where you wore sandals, your, your, your feet got icky and stinky and dirty. So when you would visit someone's home for a party or a dinner event like this, you're not hiding your feet under the table. They're sticking out behind you, but they're in view, sticking up the place. So what do you do? You wash the feet. You have a servant, usually, the lowliest of your servants, but a servant wash your guest's feet as an act of kindness and, and quite frankly, a, 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 a hygienic act. Hmm. But he says to him, I came to your house, but you didn't wash my feet. She's been washing my feet. You gave me no kiss, the kiss of welcome, a greeting that would often be shared between two brothers in the Hebrew faith was the kiss of peace. You gave me, you, you, you invited me to eat, but you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came here, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. He's really putting Simon in his place, isn't he? You did not anoint my head with oil. Another practice would be to provide a little anointment with oil, a perfume type oil. Hmm. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. <laughs> what you haven't done, as the host should have done, she, a notorious sinner, has done for me. Jesus really put Simon in his place here. I would have been wanting to crawl under the table and hide if I were him. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, he's not going to downplay or minimize her sins. They were many. Her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Have been forgiven. Have been forgiven. Whoa. Eris, it's really past tense, completed past tense action. It's not something that's going to happen, not something that's happening right then and there. It has happened. Her sins have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But one to whom little is forgiven loves little. You think you don't have much to be forgiven of. No wonder you don't love me much. You don't give me a kiss of peace. You don't have my feet washed. <clears throat> you don't anoint my head with oil. She who has been given forgiven the equivalent of 500 denarii in the metaphor here. She, forgiven much, has shown great love. 
the irony here is that in truth whether you're forgiven 50 or 500 you're forgiven and, and, and the indicator in, in the metaphor is, is that the debt is something that neither can repay it's just as impossible for the one who has been given, forgiven 50 to repay it as it is for the one who has been forgiven 500 to repay it so it's kind of a, a backward statement to Simon you've been forgiven just like she has and whether it be a tiny amount or a huge amount, it's irrelevant. You've been forgiven a debt you could not repay. And you didn't do a tenth of what she has done. You've invited me to eat. You then throw her at me as a test to find out if I'm going to realize that she's a sinner. And, and that's a really nasty test, by the way. Think about it for just a minute. In the ancient world, in the Hebraic world, uh, sin was considered to be contagious. If someone was a sinner, let's use the woman with the issue of, of the hemorrhages in the next chapter as, as an example. This occurs in chapter 8, but let's pull it to right now for a minute. This woman who had those hemorrhages for 12 years, she, she was unclean. She had issues of blood coming out of her. That made her ritually unclean. And not just her, but any person she touches, she infects with that uncleanliness and they've got to go through a ritual process to get cleaned. The same is true for any kind of sin. And especially those sins that involve the exchange of bodily fluids, like the sexual sins. So here's this woman, a notorious sinner in this town, touching Jesus. And the Pharisee is rather shocked by what if he'd been a real prophet, he would have known she was a sinner and wouldn't let her do it. He's polluting himself with her. It's like he's been doing all along. Friends of sinners and tax collectors, those horrible, evil, polluted people, you're hanging around them. It's a judgment. Well, doesn't it say in the Old Testament somewhere that uh, the sins of the fathers and mothers will be visited on their visited children? On their children. Yeah, yeah, it does say that. And that's, that's a serious issue. It, 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 sins can be inherited, but they can also be wiped out by righteous acts by faithful acts. So here's Jesus. He's there. He's been, according to the Pharisee, polluted. And he indicates, no, not even close. Not even close. Look what he says. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. It's as if Something has happened before this event with this woman that we don't know about. Either he said something to her prior, or she was present at a healing, or, or present at a forgiveness event. She herself was healed, possibly, in a story that we don't have in front of us. There's lots of speculation as to that one. Lots of attempts to connect her with people in Matthew or Mark or John. However you understand it, and, and there's reasons for that, by the way. But however you understand this woman, she is indicated as being a, a significant sinner. But she, in her own mind, made people forgiven, but in the community she wouldn't change. Her uh, relationship wouldn't change with the community, would it? Well, 
that's the depends upon the community and how the community views the healing and whether the community believes the healing or not. We see instances in the Gospels where Jesus performs the, the healing of an exorcism and, and that healing is then recognized by the community. They're frightened by it or they celebrate God for it. So yeah, the communities do at times recognize it. it be known. Could very well be. Could very well be. So there are apparently some backstory here. Well, yes. Uh, a little unintended consequence might be Simon invited her there to set up the deal. Possibly. But now, fifties where I had the problem till you said that. And he, well, he's not safe. there yet. Yeah, we're almost there. Oh, I thought he said that. <laughs> I thought you already read that. <laughs> Then he said to her, well, not even here, not even verse 48 yet. Sorry. Then he, it's okay. No, it's great. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's present tense. Yes. That's where I was at. It's a re repetition, the next verse. It's a repetition. Your sins are forgiven. You know, her actions seem almost like contrition to me. A recognition. It, it's like maybe she saw one get somebody get forgiven or healed, and it so sparked her, so impelled her to recognize her need for forgiveness that she was able and willing to make this act of contrition of going in there and bathing his feet. And then you get this response. God, Jesus, knowing that her sins have already been forgiven, I mean, that's that completed line, about uh, have been forgiven. And then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Sometimes we have to be reminded again and again and again that our sins are forgiven us. sinned and been forgiven before. Yes. But look at verse 49. But those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. In verse 50, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That word, saved. Well, that indicates that she did come here to perform that act. This indicates that she, in her motivation, was to do exactly what she did. She came to perform this act of love for Jesus, to express the love that she has for him as, as an act of contrition, as an act of thanksgiving, as an act of knowing that her sins have been and are forgiven and will be forgiven. It says your faith, which indicates that she had it already. Faith? Well, well, keep in mind that faith, and we're going to see this throughout chapter 8 and 9. This sets the stage for the next two chapters. Um, keep in mind that the chapters and verses are added much later. They're not part of the original. The chapter and verse divisions are much later. What happens here leads to what happens in chapter 8. And it's kind of applied. And we're going to see in chapter 8, this is going to be repeated. That line, verse 50, is going to be repeated again to another person. And faith is seen as an action. You hear, 
you respond, and that hearing, excuse me, you hear, you believe, and you respond. The hearing, the belief, and the response have to come together. That's what faith is. All right? And that's what we have here, and that's what we're going to have over in chapter 8. And that's exactly what she's done. She's heard something, she's experienced something which has caused her to believe that this is an important act for her to do. She does it. The Pharisee has his own purposes behind this. He's scandalized by it, but he kind of figured it was going to be happening. And then Jesus uses, uses this as a teaching moment to say, look, she knows how much she has been forgiven, do you? Neither of you could repay it. What she's doing doesn't really repay it. It's an expression of thanksgiving for being forgiven. Then he turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. And then he says again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now that word saved, it's going to get used again and again here. It's used not just in Luke, but in the other Gospels too. It's the Greek word sozo. S-O-Z-O -O is a good way to, to transliterate it. S-O-Z-O. -O. It has multiple nuances. It means to save or deliver. It means to heal or make whole. It means to forgive in the act of saving. And it means to reconcile in the act of healing brokenness. It's two sides of the same coin. It's different nuances of the same thing. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, and in the Epistles, saving or salvation and healing and reconciliation and forgiving are all the same thing. Hence, Jesus will use saved here and will use made you well for the woman with the hemorrhage. And he's using the same word. It's different nuances on that same word given the context in which it occurs. That's one of the reasons why in some cases exorcisms of demons are articulated as being healings. Because having demonic possession is a broken characteristic, a, a characteristic of having been broken, uh, will being broken, life being broken, relationships are broken. You go and you live in the tombs, you, you don't relate with people, your, your life is broken with God, God's self, and when you deliver someone from a demon, you deliver them from that brokenness. The same is true for sins. Sins break us. The, the actual sins are symptoms. The, the state of being broken is the problem. The same is true for sicknesses and illnesses. They break us. And oftentimes, one leads to one and the other leads to the other. It can go both directions. Jesus and the New Testament authors viewed sin and illness salvation and healing as closely knitted together concepts with one word 
being used for all of it, for, for, for salvation, for saving, for healing. And that's so-so. And here it's used in genetic connection with faith. Is that a Greek word? So-so is a Greek word. The formation here is sesokin, but it's the root is so-so, which means I deliver, I forgive, I save, I heal. It's all elements of the same concept in Greek. There's no real parallel in Aramaic. Well, there is, but I mean, it's, it's not as strong. In Greek, it's extremely strong. It's a word that was specifically chosen for that reason. What Jesus would have said in the original Aramaic, I don't know. But in Greek, they chose that word. And it's persistent. It's found in the Gospels. It's found in the Epistle literature. That salvation and healing are fundamentally the same thing. Which points out also that most healing is more about being made whole than it is about curing illnesses. Just as salvation is more about being made whole than it is about wiping out particular sins. Sins are symptoms. Illnesses are symptoms. Let me ask you a question. Yes. Does this, I don't know anything about Greek, but does this mean that Greek has a, a lot fewer words? Yes. Yes. Because they may have so many different meanings. The same is true for Hebrew. They have, these, these are very limited vocabularies. Even beyond the New Testament Greek, you don't expand the vocabulary more than about 20%, and you've got classical Greek. And the nuances shift over time and context as well depending upon the era in which the author is writing. And in Koine period, in the first century, Greek had many nuances, and, and sozo is an example of one of those words. Um, pistio is another. It, its root word, which is the verb for faith, the noun is pistis, which means faith, and you have faithing action, or pistio. And the root is p, and it means literally, well, it's the root at the, the heart of the word for trust, elpis. And it literally means to trust, to hang your life upon, to rest upon, to, to recline upon, to, to, to base what you're doing upon it. Hence, faith is a component of every action. It points to something that you believe and have confidence in, and therefore you do. Faith is an action based upon belief sustained by confidence. It's always an action. And when that action occurs, you have then the noun. And that's what we have here. That's the word that's being used, pistis. So the faith, which has been exemplified by her action. And it's her faith in what? It's her faith in Jesus. It's her faith in her, her forgiveness. It's her faith in the healing of the broken relationship. It's the, it's the faith in the salvation that she has received. Has compelled her, driven her, guided her in doing it. And the, and the fact that it's past or present tense is almost irrelevant because the concept of biblical hope, in another word rooted here, elpis, 
is 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 part and parcel of faith. So it can be forward looking, backward looking, present looking, it doesn't matter. When you take this action, this belief action, it exemplifies and establishes the reality of what it is. You can have belief in something and not have faith in it. I did this in a sermon back not long after getting here. I'll do it again soon, as I do it once a year at least. <clears throat> I believe this chair will hold my weight. I was just sitting in it. All right? But, you know, even though I believe this chair is going to hold my weight, and I really and truly believe it, I think I'm going to go sit over here in Gene's lap. Now, is that act of sitting in Gene's lap an act of faith in that chair? Even though I believe it will hold me, I'm going to sit in Gene's lap instead. It means I don't have any faith in the chair. I might have belief in it. I don't have faith in it. I have faith in Gene's lap that it would hold me. And a faith in Gene that he wouldn't push me out. It's like reading a guarantee when you buy something and you're not sure it's going to... Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. Faith is doing this. I believe the chair will hold me. I just exemplified the belief. That's pistis. And the action is pistuo. And that word is used again and again and again and again and again in the New Testament. And it's one of the most important words to be found there. Because it... It means that faith is never passive. It's why holiness is never passive. It's always active. It's why social holiness and personal holiness are always held together. It's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Because until you're willing to place your belief into action, you don't have really belief. You may have it, but it's weak, it's anemic, it doesn't do anything. There's another word for that. If it's belief in action, it's faith. English lacks the word. We translate pistuo out of Greek into belief all the time. It's weak. I prefer to make up a verb. I could say faith. That's appropriate because you're, it's the noun that's the result of the action. Greek has it. We don't, so I invent it. But that's what we got here. I mean... You've got this woman who has belief, and she's exemplifying that belief in this forgiveness, in this healing of a broken relationship through her actions. And this story sets the stage for what now happens in chapter 8, in a number of very important events that we will see. Extremely important. We have the parable of the sower, which gives the theological basis for what we're talking about. The nature of faith, by the way. The parable of the sower is about faith. And on what it means to listen. It also held, holds the uh, garrison demoniac. That healing or deliverance event. And then, most especially, the miracle on the way to a miracle. Uh, the, the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. And the raising of Jairus' daughter. All of these events. Wow. In cha chapter 8 huge. And all of these events all talk about faith. Not passive belief, but active belief. And how it's important that if your belief is going to have any meaning at all, it has to be active. 
It's an incredibly important component of Jesus' ministry. One that we often overlook. We're often wanting to make faith the things that we believe. These doctrines that we believe as Christians. No. The doctrines are second and third level interpretations of what we believe. What we faith is is action. I often say we are saved not by the things that we believe, but through the through the actions that reflect the relationship that we have with God and with each other. And if you have that relationship with God and with each other, if you have that relationship with Jesus and your actions show that, then you have the doctrines of the church that come along. But if you go back and take a look at the New Testament period, I mean, they didn't have the doctrine of the Trinity. They didn't have the doctrine of the consubstantial humanity and divinity of Jesus. They didn't have all those important doctrines that we think are important these days. But they knew Jesus was the Son of God, and they knew that when they encountered Christ, they encountered God. And they knew that it was important to do what Jesus said. Really, that's it. I wonder if this was the inspiration. Was it Nike that put out the "Just Do It"? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if this was. I don't know if this was the inspiration for it, but yeah, <laughs> it's a demonstration of it anyway. It is a demonstration of it. In the end, that is what you have to do. <coughs> I mean, as important as <coughs> as important as the doctrines are, if you don't live your life according to what Jesus says you can explicate the doctrines all you want they're not going to save you even though it says your faith has saved you it's what she did that exemplified that faith well that's part of it the way you define it mm, yeah it is it is questions thoughts comments Gosh, it's already late. Questions, thoughts, comments? Interesting. Chapter 7 is critically important because it sets the stage, not just for the next two chapters, but for the rest of the rest of the gospel. It's the halfway point in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Remember, Jesus' ministry in Galilee begins in chapter 4 and runs through verse 50 of chapter 9. And it's his ministry in Galilee where he essentially lays out his entire ethic, where he essentially heals people, forgives people, delivers people. He, is, he does what he says he's going to do in chapter 4. He's already done it here in chapter 7. He's going to do more of it and make it very clear that this is what he's doing in chapters 8 and 9. And then he turns his face to Jerusalem to die. To confront the authorities of the day and then to die. And then that, so after chapter 9, the rest of the Gospel of Luke is involved with him going to Jerusalem, then in Jerusalem, and trial and death. So we're kind of halfway through the ministry in Galilee. The next two chapters will be very critical. And next week I'll have my thoughts on chapter 8 that the bishop asked me to do. Uh, or you can find them on my Facebook page online. Um, okay. Next.
next week we'll pick it up with chapter 8. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.